Well, it's a, uh, it's a real honor for me to be here uh, at this uh, group. I, this is really kind of what I do, uh, speak to men's groups. And it struck me that uh, as I start sharing my message, I'm going to go for about 20, 15, 20 minutes, and then I'm going to let Jimbo come up and talk about something else we're doing at the center. Um, but it struck me that the message I'm going to be sharing, if you have read the book, The True Measure of a Man, you may think that this sounds kind of familiar, the message. But what I'm here to tell you is that, that a lot of this is new teaching. As I start going through, you'll see it's teach, this is not in the book. But it is a theme because whenever I have a chance to speak to men, uh, kind of on a one-off session, this is a message that I really love to share because uh, I think it's, it's so significant. Now, <clears throat> today when we look out into the world that we live in, whether it's in Birmingham or whether it's uh, uh, in, our, in our nation or internationally, uh, all you have to do is watch the news. I think most of us would agree that we really face major problems um, in the world. And I think most modern people are convinced that there are three institutions that can really help us solve our problems, three and three only. Uh, it starts with maybe education, and education is clearly important. Um, you have the government, and clearly, biblically speaking, the government plays a role in this life. And then science and medicine. Uh, when I say science, I'll probably even say more of the social sciences. Um, but we are convinced that this is the hope of man mankind. This is the way modern people uh, approach the problems that we face out there in the world. And yet I would argue that these institutions are pretty impotent uh, and powerless when it comes to dealing with our root problems, which I would contend are issues of the heart. Now, since this is a men's luncheon, <clears throat> I do want to focus on what I would believe, I, I, I truly think, is one of the number one problems or struggles that we face as men. In fact, I would be so bold to say that I think at the heart of this teaching, uh, it, it explains why uh, so many men struggle with depression. And in the work I do, this is, I see a lot of this. Uh, even though we men are not real good about wanting to admit that they struggle with depression. Um, but I want to start with an important verse, then I'll launch into my talk. I'm going to be very brief. But this is a verse from Colossians 1.27. And the Apostle Paul says, To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is our hope? The church would say it is Christ in you, working in you, transforming your life, healing your life, that is the true hope. Now, let me lay this out for you. I believe without being aware of it, men on a daily basis, deep down, ask themselves this question. Do I really measure up as a man? You see, today we get our sense of value and worth and significance based on how we perform and how we achieve out in the workplace. In fact, Tim Keller made this observation. He says, we're the first culture in history 
where men get their sense of worth and significance based solely on how well they perform and achieve in their occupations. And what this leads to is this preoccupation, really you could almost say an addiction that we have to win the approval of other people. And it kind of works like this. Life for so many men is all about what I do and how successful I am at what I do. And then over time I begin to think, I wonder what Jim or Bob or Tom think about what I do. How do they rate what I do? And then it's just a matter of time before we begin to develop this thinking. What if I fail at what I do? What would you think of me then as a failure? How would you rate my life? Would you approve of who I was as a man? You see, this is one of the things I've learned that the fear of failure plagues men's lives. It's kind of like, it's like a psychological death. And one of the things that I found is that so many men are not driven to succeed. They're driven not to fail. I don't know how many of you remember David Sokol. He, was, uh, he ran Mid-American Energy which was owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And he was kind of, in most people's minds, the one that would be, was tabbed to take over for Warren Buffett whenever he chose to retire. And then Sokol was relieved of his position because of some unethical investments he made. It said that he retired for personal reasons, but he was pretty much let go. But there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about his life, and he talked about how driven he was and he said, I always worked harder than everyone in the company that I was working. And he said, I was driven by fear of failure. When Bernie Madoff was interviewed for the first time in prison, he'd been in prison for a year, and they were asking him about why he pulled off this scheme, this great Ponzi scheme. And he shared this with him. He said, when I was a young man, excuse me, a young boy, I watched my father go through bankruptcy. And he said, I made a decision that I would never let that happen to me. He said, because I, I wanted to never lose the honor and esteem of men. He feared failure. So this, I call this a performance trap that we get caught in. And the performance trap, first and foremost, leads us to this unbelievable fear of failing. But then think about what it does to our relationships. <clears throat> By the way, when, when I'm asked, why, why do you just work with men and not women? I usually tell them, and I, truthfully, is because women are much healthier than men. They're healthier in their relationships. 
Uh, you know, my wife, if you got my wife with your wife, assume they don't even know each other, and you sat them down at Starbucks for about an hour, it's amazing what they would tell each other. It's amazing how transparent women will be. And yet, men, we get together and we talk about sports and business and politics. And if you've got something going on in your life that's troubling you, you'll never tell anybody else. You know, we have this fear that if I shared with you what's really going on in my life, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Because we have somehow come to believe men are not supposed to struggle. Because if we struggle and we tell somebody about it, we're betraying our male identity. We got a bunch of people in here that are my age. You probably remember that old song by Simon and Garfunkel. I'm a rock. I'm an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. That's a description of what men are supposed to be like in our culture. And so we're, we're not transparent. We have this fear. And it can lead to a very lonely life. In fact, I'm convinced that that's why Thoreau said men lead lives of quiet Desperation. The performance trap explains why so often we won't take risks in life that we're supposed to take. Because risk means potential failure. And so many men will never get themselves in a situation where they might fail. And so what we end up doing is we arrange our lives in such a way that everything is predictable and under my control because it makes me feel safe and secure. Now there's more. You see, this just cascades into our lives. It explains why we are always comparing ourselves with each other. I mean, the kind of measurement, you know, I feel like I'm doing pretty good, but then how's he doing over here? You know, I find that I've got three teenagers looking back. It's amazing how we compare our kids to other people's kids. It explains why men are always trying to impress each other. You know, we feel good about our lives when people admire us and approve of us. So we're always looking for ways to increase that. And so I've got to find ways to impress all of you. And maybe the most serious issue that, that comes out of the performance trap is what we're told in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse 4. This is deadly. It says, and I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. He's saying that so many of us are driven in our work by envy. Envy is deadly. Charlie Munger, who is the kind of Warren Buffett sidekick, back in 2009, looking back on all the disaster that took place in Wall Street, he said, I've become convinced that these traders that came up with all these elaborate products, he said, I don't think they were driven by greed. I think they were driven by envy. Who was making the most money? There was a show called Biography, looking at the life of Larry Ellison, the founder and owner of, of, of Oracle. And last, the, the last four, uh, Forbes 400 richest men, he was like number three, $40 billion. But in this program, if you watched it, everyone who's ever known... Ellison will tell you, he's driven by one thing, to surpass Bill Gates as the wealthiest man in America. Unfortunately, Gates is up at $72 billion, so he's got a ways to go. But envy is a problem. Envy is mentioned in the Bible 
is one of the great evils that proceed out of the heart of men. Jesus says that in Mark 7, 22. It's one of the church, what the church identified centuries ago as one of the seven deadly sins. And it's not a behavior, but it's an inner attitude of the heart, and it causes great unhappiness in men's lives, and it's so often the reason for our discontent. And if you think about it, envy works in reverse. Because when somebody out there that you might have, you might envy and you might fail, because most men think, I don't have a problem with envy. But you know, it kind of works in reverse. When you see somebody out there in the world that fails, that falls on their faces, that have problems, there's this secret rejoicing that goes on in our hearts. That ever happened to you? I don't see many people going, yeah. But it is. It's true. I have a one-hour presentation I make on, on this issue of envy. It is unbelievably debilitating in the life of men and women. So this brings me to the question, if this is such a major problem in our lives, how are we delivered from it? What power can set us free from it? Well, let me just share with you as I kind of wrap this up about a fascinating theory. It's by a sociologist by the name of Charles Cooley. Now, I have a, a unique application, but I think that the, the, uh, he was a sociologist. I think the theory is right. It's called the looking glass self. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it goes something like this. Every one of us see ourselves the way the most important person in our lives sees us. In other words, that's where we get our sense of worth and value. Now, when you're born and you're first, say, eight to ten years of your life, the most important people in your life are your parents. And so you see yourself the way your parents see you, and hopefully your children grew up thinking, I'm special, I'm valued, I have worth, because that's what my parents have communicated the problem is, and you know this very well, it's, not, it's just a matter of time before you're no longer the most important people in their lives. Their peers are. And therefore, they begin to see themselves the way their peers see them. And you probably know this. It can be deadly because teenagers can be so brutal to each other. But then we move into adulthood, and really a whole lot doesn't change very much. Because the most important people in our lives, the people whose opinions we value most, are usually all the adults in our sphere of influence, whether it's through work, through the community, through the church. You see, these are the people's opinions that we value the most. They're the audience that we perform for. But unfortunately, what ends up happening is that we end up allowing these people to make the final verdict on our lives. And the problem is that the final verdict of my life is never in because my performance is never over. i got to always be performing and impressing. And so this is the question that I would ask you. What do you think would happen? And I'll just reserve this for men. What do you think would happen if the most important person in a man's life is Jesus. How would that change your life? What if a man completely surrenders himself to Christ and then Jesus becomes the audience 
He seeks to please with his life. What difference would that make? Well, I'm here to tell you that it would change him radically. And it would set him free from this performance trap. Because you see, Christ doesn't love us based on our performance. He loves us because we are of such great value to him. In Ephesians 2.10, it starts out with these words, We are his workmanship. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema, which means literally work of art. We are God's work of art. We have such great value because he made us. It's kind of like if you took a painting, a Rembrandt, the legitimate Rembrandt, and you had, say, a local artist who's very talented to just to, to paint a copy of it. And so, and you have an auction and you put both of these paintings up for sale. The painting by the local artist might go for, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars. But the Rembrandt would go for millions. Why? Because the artist, the one who created, the one who made it. We are of such great value to God because we are made in His image. And let me just tell you this. If we weren't of such great value to Him, He never, ever would consider going to the cross. You see, I'm convinced that when you get the gospel in a man's life, it radically changes him. It radically changes his views of life, his priorities. And it really will change the way he sees himself and the audience that he seeks to please most. You know, this is what Christ, this is what the gospel can do in a person's life. Again, I go back to where I started. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And I leave you with this illustration. I think it's powerful. The gospel, as you read through the Bible, is often compared to a tiny seed. You know, see, the thing about a little seed, it has a paradoxical, a paradoxical strength to it. I mean, take a little acorn. Any of you have any oak trees? You know, we had an oak tree. We had to cut it down. But every fall, you know, we would step on thousands of acorns in our front yard. But take a little tiny acorn. It seems so little, so insignificant, and so powerless. And yet, there is everything in that acorn to grow into a huge, powerful oak tree. And think about this. Out of that one oak tree comes hundreds of other acorns. So in a single acorn, it has the power in it to cover the entire face of the earth with wood. And so the gospel is like that tiny acorn. It comes into our hearts and its organic power is released. And if we will allow it to grow and if we will nurture it, we will become what the prophet Isaiah said. We will become oaks of righteousness. We will become the men that God intended for us to be. 
G. Campbell Morgan shared a great story that, that, that's a good ending to this all. Uh, he was an old minister. He's deceased. But years ago, he was in Italy. I'm going to read this to you. He was going into an old graveyard. There was one very old grave that was centuries old. It was apparently the grave of some prominent wealthy man. There was an enormous thick slab of marble over the grave. Yet an acorn had somehow, years before, fallen into the grave and somehow, over the centuries, had grown up out under the side of the piece of marble and had become a huge tree. And in the process, it cracked that slab of marble and rolled it off into two pieces. This was so amazing to people that a little tiny acorn could do this over time. Yet when a little acorn is given a chance to release its power, it can do something a team of horses could not even do. And the seed in this illustration, Morgan says, represents Jesus. And he releases his power into our lives when we surrender our hearts to him and walk through him through life. And this is the question that we all need to consider. What kind of marble slab do we have over our hearts? Because what I've learned in my work with men is I don't care how broken we are on the inside. If we will bring the power of Christ into our lives, it has the power to crack and roll that stone out of your life. And this is the hope that Christ offers to a broken world And it's the same hope that he offers to you and that he offers to me. And this is the hope in the work that we do. This is the hope that we seek to take out into men's lives. Whether they're businessmen or as Jimbo's here to share with you with prisoners. We've set up a prison ministry at the center. Jimbo runs it and I'm going to turn this over to him. Thank you all for allowing us to be here. See a lot of familiar faces out there. Thank y'all. Richard, thank you. Um, I have two quick questions. How many of you have ever been a part of an experience where someone, some individual, either spoke something to you, whether it was directly or, or indirectly, or you had an experience where this person penetrated your heart with a message. How many of you have ever had that experience? Message of any kind. Okay. If I were to ask you the question of how many of you if you knew of a of an opportunity where you could experience that where you could deliver a message and someone on the other side of that message would experience something like you experienced, how many of of you would be interested in that? As Richard mentioned, uh, the center has now officially set up a uh, what's called a prison ministry. Personally, I don't like the term. Uh, I think it has a certain connotation to it that's a little bit, makes, makes people in general, not just men, but makes people in general a little bit uncomfortable, a little confusing, not really sure what, what that means. Uh, 
And then, of course, what, what we see in society on television programs and what we read about and so on and so forth. So sticking the connotation to the side, I go back to what the – and focus – I want to focus on the two questions, okay? Uh, I've been involved personally for the last three and a half years in going into our correctional system. And personally, I've had an experience, uh, experiences that have penetrated my heart that I cannot possibly articulate in the English language. <laughs> um, the material that Richard spoke from today, The True Measure of a Man, most of you have probably read it, probably have copies of it. I know that through me and through the center, I've probably shipped and delivered copies for you to friends, fraternity brothers, business associates, uh, sons, daughters, whomever. Very, very powerful, meaningful book. Well, we started using this about three and a half years ago in the correctional system. And within a very, very short period of time, the and I'll explain to you how, but in a very short period of time, the feedback that we got was this is the most important, meaningful resource that we've ever seen. These are the words of the men that are, that are incarcerated. Well, it, 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 it just literally took off, and so we decided that we would create a special edition for these men. It's called the prison edition. Now they look very similar. The content basically is the same. The foreword to this book is written by Jerry Leachman, who most of you know. Uh, we took this and created this iteration and we made grammatical changes, we made some example changes, and so that it would conform more to our audience of men in these facilities. And then I had the experience of a former inmate who served 18 years of a double life sentence before he got pardoned by the governor in the, in the state of Mississippi. It's a m remarkable story. He wrote the foreword to this. But uh, what we do, what our, what our program is, is I take a group of business leaders just like you are and once a week for nine weeks we have a day we, we have Wednesdays is our day we have a time block of basically two hours sometimes we get through in less than that uh, depending on the, the the schedule but we'll go in the evening and these men and me we will address a group of inmates, maybe 50, 45, 60 inmates, and we'll provide, say, a 10 to 12 minute introduction, and then we'll break up into small groups, small groups of men. We'll have six to eight, maybe 10 group plus a leader maximum uh, as the size. And we will discuss each chapter in this book. We've designed uh, 
an additional resource that we call a reading guide, which is basically a fill-in-the-blank reading guide for each chapter. So this, this helps them get through the material. It adds meaning and it adds value to the content. Now, you may be saying to yourself, what in the world would some preppy-looking guy like me have in common and you may be asking yourself that question. What, what could I possibly have to offer someone that I don't, I, I don't, I don't even understand the, the world in which they come from? Back to the two questions. You have the power to completely change the perspective of these men. You may not think you have anything in common with them, but I can attest to the fact that you will walk out of there having gained more than what you thought you were taking in there to provide to these men. We are, as of last night, we're in two facilities right now, Bibb County Correctional, which is about an hour from here, and then we're at Donaldson, West Jefferson County. The, the participants that we have, these men, just so that you'll know, they come, they come to us and they have already been vetted, so to speak, qualified, whatever you want to call it. And these guys have come to a point in their life where they understand, they understand full well now that they are where they are because they've made poor choices in life. And they're tired of it. They're tired of it. They, they, they don't want to, even if they remain incarcerated the rest of their life, they're tired of it because they're still wandering around with these false beliefs of what it means to be a man. You see, we all grew up with this concept, Mo most of us. Most of us grew up with it. We were told to be a man. We were told to grow up. We were told to tough it out, you know, just stick with it. But the problem for most of us is that it was, no, nobody could ever define it for us. The definition kept moving based on circumstances, whether it was your own father, whether it was your pastor, your teacher, your coach, your uncle, your aunt, your brother. doesn't make any difference. They're tired of it. They're tired of it. And I can tell you that the experiences that I have gained from participating and investing my time in the life of these men has allowed me to more effectively create relationships with those of us in the free world because I've seen and experienced what it truly means for a man to get free on the inside first. You see, an, an inmate's mentality when he gets there is, wow, if I could only get out of here, then I'll straighten up. 
I'm not going to do this anymore. But you see, that's, that's a behavioral issue that doesn't work. And, and all you have to do is look at the recidivism rate that this state has. It's a recycling bin. It doesn't work. I have an exercise for these men at the first class and at the, and at the last class, at the end of nine weeks that we do, and I hand out an index card, pass out the index cards. And I tell them, we have a lot of fun with this. And I tell them, I say, okay, here's your assignment. In the next few minutes, I want you to write down in your own words what you think it means to be a man. We, you, you, you ought to see the expressions on these guys' faces. I mean, they're, they're dumbfounded. They're, they're, looking, they're looking at the buddy next to them and in front of them, and they, they're not really sure what to do. They've never, never been put in that situation. So I encourage them. I say, you know, don't overthink it. Don't worry about it. Don't, you don't have to put your name on it. But we're going we're gonna to collect them up. And so we do. We go through the nine weeks, and we do the same thing again at the end of the nine weeks. Then you ought to see what they do. I tell them up front, we understand that there's confusion as to what it means to be a man because our, our, our belief system has been built on a set of false beliefs. I tell them at the end of nine weeks, you're never going to have to worry about this again. You're, you're never going to question what it means to be a man. So, I want to encourage anyone here that's present would love to talk to you more about it. Like I said, it's we meet once a week for nine weeks. It's a two-hour block. Uh, Reynolds Watley here at the church, he can tell you more about it himself. He is an avid participant. I, I, I try to schedule the nine weeks where we have leaders that will go in, and then I, I like to give them a break because everybody needs a break, including me. And Reynolds never takes a break. He never takes a break. So anyway, think about it. I appreciate the opportunity. I, I promise you, you've all got what it takes. And uh, Joe, I want to thank you. And uh, if we can do anything, you can get in touch with Joe, and he'll get in touch with us. Thank you very much. of our Christian growth is Christian service. And uh, I just, uh, whether it's this or any other opportunity, I hope that we will each, uh, as Christian men, uh, seek to um, spread the message that we have been given, uh, that our significance is found uh, in Christ. This is a great, great opportunity. And I would, uh, we invited these guys to come because they uh, are doing great work and uh, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we can, we can uh, hop in with them and, and learn from them, and, and uh, take the message that we have at the advent of God's incredible grace. So if you are interested, the Lord tugs on your heart, say your prayers about it, um, let me know, and we'll put, you, we'll put you in touch. We've got several guys that are involved in, uh, 
in prison ministry, and uh, not one of them uh, regrets uh, being involved, but it was excited and become sort of an evangelist for uh, getting other guys involved. So hope that you'll consider that. Let me pray for us, and we'll head out. Lord, thank you for this great day. Thank you for the uh, the truth that Richard spoke to us and the invitation that Jimbo gave to us. Just ask, Lord, that you would uh, put us where you have planned for us and that we would have the courage based not on our strength, but on yours, uh, to, to walk uh, to that place. Lord God, uh, be glorified in us, uh, the hope of glory, Christ in us. Uh, amen.